0: If you would go ahead and turn your uh, Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 is uh, where the lesson is going to be from this morning. I uh, had a hard time picking what I was going to speak on because one of my favorite things to speak on is from your theme and uh, that you all have going for this year. I don't know when that begins and ends. I'm assuming if it's a normal year, you're all wrapping maybe up the end of the year of talking about it, but um, being partakers of the divine nature in Second Peter chapter 1 uh, has that. I remember actually Stephen's brother Ben pulling me into a Atlanta teenage Bible study on that, on that theme. And so uh, then I started looking at other places in Second Peter. And everywhere you look in Second Peter, there's something just a little bit weird enough that it's like, well, I don't want to just drop in one Sunday and preach this and then move on and, and not be able to fully cover all that. So that's why I decided to skip on to the end uh, of Second Peter, where we can kind of uh, look at an overview of the letter, but maybe zoom in and focus on verses 14 through 18. So if you've never outlined before, I know that there's several of you that are front from what I was told are visiting here like I am, fellow visitors, and so uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to have 2 Peter outlined lately, so uh, for the few members here, if it's a repeat, I apologize, but in chapters 1, verses 1-11, through 11, you have the implications of divine goodness, this idea of being partakers of the divine nature, what all that means, and then Peter tells us in verses 12-15, through 15, he's simply writing to remind us of these things, Make sure we think about reminders sometimes. That's what happens in Bible classes or sermons. You may think, well, I didn't get anything new out of that, but that's okay. Uh, Peter realized it was important to have some reminders at times. And so he uh, talks about how he had heard Jesus receive divine honor at the mountain, whenever the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he also talks about uh, Old Testament prophecy, not being from man, but instead that it was from God. And so therefore, the Old Testament promises and Jesus' promises were all going to come about. They're all going to come true, alluding there also to Psalm uh, chapter 2. So then with chapter 2, he goes into some other things that are certain. He says God certainly allowed false prophets in the Old Testament, and so we should not be surprised if they're false teachers uh, in the New Testament. He actually calls their teaching destructive and not just their lifestyle. Sometimes you'll hear that debate about what makes a teacher false. Is it his lifestyle or his teaching? Well, I think they both go hand in hand. And you see that as well in Jude verse 4. Jude, by the way, is largely a parallel to what happens in 2 Peter. And then he says that God will certainly rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. Uh, Sometimes we wonder about uh, whether or not God is going to be able to rescue us from how evil the world may be coming around us. And so Peter reminds him of times where God has done that. Uh, in the past, and so he then talks some more about the false teachers in verses ten through twenty two uh, key of which might be verse nineteen, where they promise freedom, but it 's really slavery to sin, and so then the other certainty is that God will come and and judge the world as He had promised, even though there might be some who mock uh, this idea. What Peter, I think really says there in chapter three, verses one through thirteen is that this is all about god 's patience, and so if we 're going to be partakers of the divine nature we 're going to be like divinity. we like God. We need to emulate that patience uh, and have that same desire that he had for the world to repent and be holy. You can read about that in verses 9 through 11. So that brings us up to where I want to, uh, us to look at here this morning in verse 14. It says, "...therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So going back to verse 14, which says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, these things, these things refers back to verse 13, where he describes there, according to his promise, we are, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking for a day in which righteousness will be dwelling in all that around us, starting within ourselves and then out to those around us. That's maybe the easy part of chapter 3. There may be some debate about some of the other stuff, but regardless of all that debate in chapter 3, this is the emphasis Peter puts here on holiness, that's what we've seen him emphasize in your uh, theme for the year uh, with all the different attributes of holiness. You see this also uh, in First Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 13, where he says, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." Peter's emphasis, again, regardless of whatever the details might be about chapter 3, his emphasis is on that we need to be holy, we need to be righteous, because this spotless and blameless uh, idea that comes from the perfect lamb that uh, Jesus had been. When you look at the uh, phrases here, spotless and blameless, and that's something Peter does a lot, is put two words together like this. Uh, Most of the 40 occurrences of these words are moral in tone. We may not think of those words as spotless about that, but that's the way it was in the ancient world, not just uh, even in Scripture. And he tells us then also to be diligent to be found in peace. This diligence, of course, echoing back to chapter 1, verse 5, about be diligent to add these different virtues to your life. The idea of working on holiness may not be prevalent, but it is a biblical idea that we are to work at it, that it does not come naturally. And so there's going to be a struggle, there's going to be setbacks, um, and I think sometimes that helps because the babe in Christ wonders, well, why am I still engaging in this sin and that sin, or why do I have this attitude or that attitude? Why is my mind not being transformed? Well, it's something that does require work, and it takes time uh, because you don't, you're you not able to accomplish it just instantaneously. The peace here could refer to uh, one another, or towards him. Either way, it works. Is what we need to be do. What we need to do. We need to be found to be at peace with God, and Peter does wish for peace with God to be multiplied to us, as he said in chapter one, verse two. But a letter like this could also create some dissension in the congregation. You think about that. If he's warning about all these false teachers, and you know, I read through my outlines for chapter two, and I was like, ah, that'd just be really weird to drop in for one lesson and, and read some of chapter two to this congregation and say, all right, see you later, because. It's really aggressive tone in chapter 2. And so since Peter knew that was going to be part of not because he knew because he had already written that chapter he knew that this could be um uh, contentious within the congregation there and so I think that it's also I think it's actually better to say he's somewhat being bound in peace with one another along with being at peace with God of course. Both of these goals are worthy of our diligent effort. We need to be reconciled to God in order to be reconciled with each other. You can't just wish for it, uh, but it takes this work we've been talking about. When you look at verse 15 you think about this patience, it reminds me of the saying some of us have heard at times, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, I think that's actually very similar to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But for God's grace, we might be in the exact same situation as some of the people we see that are have uh, ruined them their lives with sin. Well, it's also true, but for God's patience, we'd be in quite a fix as well. Without God's patience, we would not have salvation. And so a simple uh, thing to be thankful for is not just the salvation, but the patience that preceded that salvation. Uh, the patience that comes even after our initial salvation, um, receiving of cleansing of sin his patience then comes whenever we need our sins washed away again because we've stumbled and fallen off of the path of holiness and so we need to realize that God's patience is what allowed our salvation and with that in mind give others around us more time because being a partaker of the divine nature having his patience with others may be what they need for them to be able to reach their salvation if we are too quick to uh, condemn or judge or rebuke or be harsh in some way that would be inappropriate I'm not saying it's, it's never appropriate we do see that like I said in chapter 2 but if we're too quick to get that moment we may be the ones that actually spurn people from the Lord and from salvation and so these attributes that we're seeing here of God that are continuing on down in chapter 3 give us some, uh, some goals of, of what we're trying to reach and being a reflection of God's glory then he said there in the next passage, Our beloved brother Paul. Uh, for the final time in this letter, Peter doesn't exalt himself. And you see this also in his first letter. When you think about 1 Peter chapter 5, and he talks about there being a, uh, a fellow uh, shepherd there with the people. There isn't a shred of evidence for Peter uh, exalting himself over the other apostles. He never claims an authority over them. And that's just, this is important. Because there's also never any New Testament evidence of an ongoing, I'm going to emphasize ongoing, Peter-Paul split. We do have the time where Peter stumbled at <laughs> Galatia, and Paul has to correct him. Read about that in Galatians chapter 2. But as we looked at this morning in our class on John 13, when they're washing the feet, there's never this elevation of Peter. In fact, what Jesus says is you all need to not be elevating yourself over others, but seeing everyone else as needing to be served and, and, and putting yourself below others instead of above others. So uh, we need to think of others more than ourselves and, and imitate Peter's attitude here of others are more important than others and not being feeling like we have more power or more greater reputation or greater holiness uh, over these others. Leaders in the church are servants. They're not to be self-willed, as he says in 1 Peter chapter five. So he says, look at our beloved brother Paul and the wisdom that is given to him. Apparently, I'm not a Greek scholar the the way that others are, to the degree that others are, but they would claim that this is a technical phrase that could be alluding to divine inspiration. I think the better way to talk about Paul's inspiration isn't to to appeal to some obscure technical jargon of the ancient world. Well, actually, this word could mean, I don't think that's the best way to do it. What you have right here, I think, is where he says, as they do the rest of the scriptures. He's putting Paul's writings there at the same level of uh, the scriptures, by referring to them there as the rest of the scriptures. Of the scripture, so whether that technical jargon is true or not, uh, you have this attitude here or this idea here. where Knights he notes also that he wrote to you uh, in all of his letters. Clearly, Paul wrote to this group, and there was a collection of writings uh, to others. We I mean, sometimes don't appreciate how much work was going in and writing these letters and how they were spread around. So, look if you look over Colossians chapter four, verse sixteen. You read there that Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you read their letter. So I sometimes get this question, but well, did the apostles realize the authority that they had as official ambassadors of Jesus, the way we send refer to the reverts on Well, by the way you read their letters, you sure get the impression that they did understand this. In fact, there's some places I think we could show if we were in a lesson just on that subject in 1 Corinthians. Paul's very explicit about saying, this I didn't get from the Lord. This is just my opinion. But the rest of this, he says, is from the Lord. So he understood his authority. Even the churches understood his authority. That's why they're writing to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul is actually responding to their letter. They're saying, hey, Paul, tell us the answer to this question. And they're not just doing that because, well, we really liked it when you came and talked to us a few months ago. They're writing to him as an authoritative teacher wanting a revelation from the Lord. And so here you see this same idea. This, there was a great realization that these letters were carrying the authoritative <laughs> words of Jesus' official ambassadors. Uh, can we end up worshiping Scripture in some kind of sinful way i, I don 't know I, I hear sometimes people make that claim. All I know is that this is the last uh, remaining uh, evidence that i 'm currently aware of and if I find out of anything more that came from these apostles i want to I want to dive in and, and read about it because they were so they were carrying not only this authority but they were one of the most amazing historical events that the world has known, and their record of preservation is incredible. Now, let's notice also what he says about these things that are along with the rest of the Scriptures. He says there are some things that are hard to understand. We need to be clear with new converts and with ourselves, not to expect study to be simple and easy. Sometimes it's, it's, it's straightforward and it's easy. Sometimes it's simple. But there's an admission here that some things, not all things, but some things are hard to understand. And so then we go back to that word we talked about earlier in trying to add virtues to our life. Not only do we need to be diligent to add holiness to our life, and diligent to work on these virtues. None of this to assume, by the way, and make sure I'm clear about this: that you do that without God's help. God is the one who helps equip us with these virtues and these attitudes that we keep referring to. He, He helps us be transformed into the holiness that we need to have before him. I I, I, all of a sudden sense that I might be coming across the wrong way there, so I wanted to add that clarification. But that word diligent for these virtues should also be applied to our Bible study. We need to be diligent to study, diligent to read with an understanding. You know, sometimes I've heard it suggested that there are uh, reading levels to some of the translations. I don't remember which one this was about, but I remember when I was in school... um, we were getting into some pretty complicated parts of um, academic Bible study, and one of the guys there who was—he was wanting to be a preacher, same way that I at that point knew that I was wanting to preach and teach. He said, "Well, my dad said that uh, the Bible's written at a fourth grade level, so I don't know what all this academic stuff is about. I'm finished." And he threw his books down. And I think—I think he left school like that within that week. He—he was, he was done with it. <laughs> I felt sorry for him because I he didn't understand I was making just as bad as grades as him, but it, you know didn't really you know nobody's going to check your transcript whenever you're trying to you know come teach him a Bible study at Chick Fil A or Starbucks or whatever. Um, but I, I thought about that fourth grade reading level. So I decided to look it up one time. The reading levels aren't actually as easy as I think some people understand. If you were to look up an academic diagnosis of the King James Version, it's a 12th grade reading level. Now that one probably doesn't surprise you. You're probably somebody saying, no, it actually requires a collegiate degree of the King, Queen's English or whatever it is. The New American Standard Bible, the one that I use all the time, apparently got an 11th grade rating, which I guess means that my daughters can't understand the New American Standard Bible. You know, They're not 11th graders. Uh, So I kept looking. The ESV, and at that time we still had the HCSB. I guess now that's the Christian Standard Bible, and it probably hasn't been out long enough to get a diagnosis of what grade level. But the ESV and the Sutherland-Holman Christian Standard, they had a 7th to an 8th grade reading level, a middle school reading level. It took me going all the way down to the Nerv Bible. You didn't know that one existed, (laughs) the Nerv Bible? That sounds really bad, doesn't it? But it's the New International Reader's Version, meant for children, and even it got a 3rd grade reading level. Well, next time you're with a third grader, just test their reading skills. See how proficient they are at reading some things. And so my simple point is, the reading level may not be as easy as we are assuming anyway. I know the, the, the I was about to say the ancient world, that sounded really bad. The, uh, the pioneers in America would teach reading with the Bibles in the schools. It was a great way for kids to learn how to read and they'd have them read a Bible story. And, and so that sometimes maybe gives us an impression of it being easy to read. But that's not always the case. And I think about Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading something that when you really start to think about it, it was really hard to understand. The servant in Isaiah gets applied at some moments to a group of people that the group was going to collectively serve Jehovah. And at other times, the servant in Isaiah is applied to an individual. And so the Ethiopian eunuch sometimes may were a little bit hard on him about he's asking, what, what is this? What's going on here, Philip? And Philip has to explain it to him. But if you just had Isaiah... It would be pretty difficult. And so that's why sometimes maybe we don't appreciate how easy it is to get tripped up in Bible study to think, you know what, it's too hard, I give up. And so we need to be patient and go back to that word with these people who are burnt out on Bible study and say, hey, look, with God's help, if we just take our time with this, I think we can begin to understand the overall picture of Isaiah, Then we can begin to zoom in on some points that maybe you aren't as familiar with, and I think you can be equipped with the knowledge of who God is. And you notice that part of the problem is, as he goes on to say there, that the untaught and unstable distort his letters. And then notice what else he says about it that it destroys them. It's to their own destruction. That's a pretty aggressive word. So let it be a warning to all of us that if we're not learning and if we're not grounded in the text, we can easily come to be distorted in our understanding of the text and then we might actually be leading to the destruction of souls. There's a uh, modern approach, maybe you've run into it, maybe you've even said it. I, I've said the words before. When I, mean, I say the words, I always feel bad because I know that I was kind of taught against this idea with these words. You'll hear people say, well what it means to me is, those words alone are not what's wrong, okay, but the idea is if we're going to try to take the easy way out, and we, have no, we don't have any intentions of listening to others in the room about what it means. We don't have any intention of listening to a, a fair discussion of that it's actually what the word does or does not mean. And so it can be easier to say, well, here's what it means to me, and now let's move on. And I don't want to entertain any other ideas. I don't want to entertain, certainly don't want to entertain the idea that I might be wrong about what it means. And so that approach to Bible study can be abused. Let me say it that way. Because I've said the words myself, I don't want you to walk away from saying, oh, I can never utter those words or I'm wrong. Just be careful. When you find yourself uttering those words, have you actually given study to what you think it means? Have you, and are you open to being corrected about possible misunderstandings to what it means? And so when it comes to uh, these people here with this destruction that Peter's referring to, uh, we can't be positive what he had in mind. He didn't go into any details about what it was. And, and I'll say this about that. I like that the Bible so often doesn't give us specifics about the other side that might be Paul's opponents or Peter's opponents. And here's why. If we could read their side and if we could know more specifics at times, for example, sometimes people would debate uh, is Paul addressing Gnostic Jews in Colossians? We were referring to that one earlier. The danger of it, if you were able to find out exactly who they were, then modern day people say, well, that's not me, I'm not Gnostic. Well, I don't do any of the Jewish part of that. And so I actually like that the Bible sometimes is very general in its, in its um, correction of the false teaching of that era because it allows it to still be so applicable to today's errors. So the ancient world, we, we don't know what this distortion was that Peter had in mind. It could be that they were turning the grace of God into licentiousness. You have that in like in Jude verse 4 as we referenced earlier. There were Gnostics that did that. Um, it could be a misunderstanding of Paul on the coming resurrection. Uh, we had that problem earlier in chapter 3, so it could be something along those lines. However, uh, these people justified it. They were actually rationalizing sin. So be careful to realize that with our minds, we can rationalize sin if we, are, if we uh, work hard at that, uh, the same way that these must have done as they led some to destruction. So he concludes then uh, with verses 17 and 18. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Beyond your guards, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Sometimes you'll run into this distortion. I feel like sometimes this is made into a straw man, and we don't always handle this as best as we should, but you will run into a distortion at times that discuss that it is impossible for some to fall away. But this is exactly what Peter's warning about. From beginning, really, to end of this letter. When I mean, it starts in there about being partakers of the divine nature. He already has it in your mind that if you don't increase in these things, that's what he talks about, I think it is, in verse 10. If you're not increasing in these virtues, then you're in- endangered. And so this whole letter could be a, uh, summarized in that way by some. And so this possibility of apostasy... What's so sad about it is the uh, inability to recognize this sometimes comes from those who are wanting to highlight God's grace. And grace is connected to this possibility. Look over at Galatians 5, verse 2. And we're going to come back to Peter where he's connected to the grace, but I'm going to connect Paul to grace and then we'll do Peter. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. See, here we have a little bit of specifics, and so some people say, Well, see, that's not me. I don't have a problem with I don't go around telling people they have to be circumcised. So Galatians doesn't apply to me. Well, to an extent, that's true, because Galatians was dealing with a very specific problem of imposing circumcision on Christians. Um, But notice there, the the way Paul described this problem in Galatians, that it was a falling from grace. And so here's what I want to suggest to you. Modern versions of the Galatian problem still exist. This is no longer with circumcision. And it really, it's very subconscious as well because we don't have time for a whole study of Galatians and these Judaizers. But the Judaizers were, were meaning, they meant well with what they were teaching. They believed it to be God's will, and they thought they were helping people. Say, no, this is what you need to do to truly be a Christian. And some of us today may have some subconscious ones. We don't actually say it out loud, you need to do this. But we may get divided over, you know, Richard and I were joking about what time services start. And there really can be some people that can be arrogant about that both ways, right? Well, so you guys like to sleep in, that's your problem. You are know, not able to get up early for the Lord. And then they might some of them might take us so far as to trace through the Bible all the times that they arose early, right? I mean, think about the great sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. What's it say? It says he rose up early in the morning. You see? Big things happen early in the morning. You know, so that's I can see someone getting carried away with that and really begin to think that it was it was a danger that you all enjoyed sleeping in. Now I'm I'm speaking for all of you. It was Richard was one who said he like to sleep in, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to rescue that. <laughs> now the opposite thing could be true too, though. The guy sleeping in because he can be Eric and he say, well, I know that that guy has his scriptures wrong. He thinks you have to get up early, but you don't. What a silly guy! He thinks you have to get up early. Doesn't he know that by getting out there that early and meeting at the same time as all the other churches, he can't visit around other churches?" So I try to be evangelistic to other denominations. I've actually heard someone make that argument about why they met on Tuesday or Thursday night instead of Wednesday night. And I heard one guy make that argument about why we meet only at 3 o'clock on Sundays so that they could then travel around on Sunday mornings. You can become arrogant either direction. Arrogant about traditionalism or arrogant against traditionalism and miss the fact that it's supposed to be about Christ. And you see, now some people are adding things to Christ, and so they've fallen from grace and, and, and Christ and begun to focus on some of these other externals. And so what's, what's so sad about this doctrine, about thinking you know, we can't fall away, is that it actually connects with grace, both there in, in Paul in Galatians chapter 5, but back to where we were in Peter, where he talks about, I'm warning you, because we're right at this point they haven't done it. You need to know this beforehand. Be on your guard that you can fall from your steadfastness. And so instead he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Peter connect the potential to falling away as being a lack of understanding grace. I'll make sure i say that maybe a little bit more clearly. If we don't understand grace accurately, that's when you're more likely to fall away. You know, I think sometimes people want to try to uh, specialize in the specifics to keep people from falling away. Well, let me make sure you know this extra doctrine, and maybe me make sure you know this extra doctrine. And when you line up these ten unique doctrines that make us different than the rest of the mainstream Christian world, and we'll, we're assured that you'll never fall away. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to better understand grace. And that's why Peter ends with this note. You're, you may fall away, so here's what you need to do. You need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. The expectation throughout the New Testament is growth towards Jesus. And so one of the other reasons that many people fall away is just because they're stagnant. They're not growing. And so what I'm thankful about is that your theme this year is talking about both of these things, a a learning goal, getting knowledge, but then also putting it into action, a living goal. That means you're changing your behaviors. You're changing the way you react to certain things. You're changing the way you think about certain things. That kind of growth is key to becoming what it is that God wants us to be. And so I am excited. I was, well, I was excited back when I first heard. I'm excited to get to have the opportunity to be with you here this morning to join with you and reminding all of us because we all can use a reminder of this great letter that Peter has left us here, beginning with the growth in these uh, many virtues because of these incredible, precious, and magnificent promises reminding us of what's going to come, that there are going to be people who try to distract us with, uh, with error, false teachers, but then also reminding us there's certainly going to be a judgment. So keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you will then pray with me. Father, help us to continue to grow exactly in the way that you have prescribed in your word and help us to honor you now and in the future with the growth that we can get from your power working in us your word working in us your son and the spirit interceding on our behalf the son whenever we have fallen short and the spirit whenever we're unsure how to pray we know father that you are still working in our lives and we are so thankful that when we consider the vastness of this universe that you are mindful of us and that you are not just mindful but that you are involved in our life and that providentially you will give us moments along our path that can help us to be transformed into the image of your son that you will give us brethren who can share with us wisdom so that we can gain the wisdom we know that we've been lacking and that we're asking for through prayer. So, Father, help us to be ever grateful for these many many spiritual blessings. And help us to imitate you in patience. Help us remember that with each day that you delay your son's return, it is because you are waiting for more to come to repentance. And so, Father, we are torn. Because at times in this world, we long to escape and be at home with you right now. We look around at the things that are going on in the world, and at times we're discouraged with all the darkness. We struggle to see the light, and so we become eager for your Son to return quickly. And We know, Father, that even in the revelation, this is a prayer that we can pray to you, but at the same time, Father, we ask you to transform our hearts into the love that you have for the world. And help us to have the boldness to pray, not for selfish reasons, but for selfless reasons. Help us to pray that you will delay your return so that more can come to repentance. Help us to endure the extra time that you may give us an answer to this prayer. And help us not just to endure that extra time, but help us to use it to be evangelistic. Help us to reach out to others and tell them the time is coming in which we'll have to give an account for how we've lived the life that you've given us. So help us, Father, to balance these thoughts as we wrestle within our souls for the things we desire and the things that we know that are best that come from you. We trust you, Father, and know that in your good timing you will send your son back in the time that is right. So help us in the meantime, be warned of the things that Peter's warned about and help us keep growing. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.